Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our study through the little joyful book of Philippians. We're going to cover verses 12 through 18 this morning as we continue on. And the title is Working Out Your Salvation. Working out, not working for.
your own salvation with, <clears throat> with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice it says, it is God who works in you. That's how we do anything. If God's not working in me, I'm depending on my own strength, my own resources. So it's not by imitating Christ that I go about living Christ. But it's by Christ who lives in me. God works in, we work out. We develop the submissive mind by responding, responding to the provisions that God makes available to us. With the example of Jesus shown to us, how could we think anything else than total obedience to God's will as being acceptable service? Jesus was obedient to the point of death. When Paul was at Philippi, the believers influenced by his uncompromising dedication to the Lord and his unwavering obedience to God's will, they voluntarily marched in step with Paul. They also learned obedience. They learned how to suffer joyfully to the Father's good and acceptable and perfect will. And now that Paul wasn't with them anymore, the Philippians had to find out you know, find out and, and follow God's will on their own. So it was very important that they keep walking down the road of obedience. And this is what they were doing with fear and trembling. And Paul understood what it was to fear and tremble. He understood the Philippians' fear and trembling. Because when he was first at Corinth, he was in fear. And he was in much trembling, he said leaving his past experiences behind like the whippings and the imprisonments, the persecu uh, persecution and the mockery in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. He arrived in Philippi with the intention of winning the city for Christ. Corinth wasn't as small as some of the other cities. And it wasn't a university town like Athens, but it was a great seaport. It was a prosperous business center, well known but not just for its wealth and sophistication, but also for its sin. And Paul was equipped with only the power of the gospel. Now, when I say with only, I'm not making it sound well like he needed somebody else, something else. He went to Philippi to win the people for Christ with only the power of the gospel. That's all he needed. That's why I said only. That's what we need to win people to Christ. We need the power of the word of God the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul was going to take on Sin City, the vanity fair of the old world. He was afraid, but not because of what man could do to him. Because, you see, he had conquered that fear a long time ago, so he could face being killed all day long like sheep for the slaughter. He was in fear and trembling, not of man, but he was afraid to let his Lord down by not re representing him satisfactorily in that needy city. Paul wanted the Philippians to have the same concern that he had for the people's souls. We should also be afraid of letting the Lord down. His love for us is so great that we don't dare ask or speak in a way that would take away from God's glory. With fear and trembling, we are to work out our salvation. Salvation is a precious gift that God has given us. It's not earned by any work of our own. It's not 
there's nothing that we can do to work for it. And then in saying this, Paul isn't contradicting what he said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You could compare, somebody said, you could compare the gift of salvation to the gift of a gold mine. If, you, if someone gave you a gold mine that was worth an incalculable amount of money, you'd have great wealth. But here's the thing. The gold really wouldn't do you any good unless you worked to dig it out of the mine. In the same way, we need to get busy. We need to get to, get to work on our salvation. God is at work in us. That's his part. We do what we can. That's our part. He does what we can't do. You see, God gives us a part of the responsibility of our salvation. God just doesn't save us, and then we just coast to heaven. Again, we're not working for it. We're working it out. That's the important thing to understand. There are no shortcuts to heaven. You know, we like shortcuts. We like to make things easy. But that doesn't work in the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You see, that's the hard part. Take up his cross and follow me. You see, between following Christ, denying ourselves and following him, there's a cross. And that cross represents dying to ourselves daily in a thousand ways. Temptations, you know, trials, uh, uh, tribulation, all kinds of things. Satan loves shortcuts. You know, he tried to get Jesus to shortcut the cross. He said to Jesus, you know, I'm standing on the, on the, 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 the pinnacle. He said, he, he said, look out there, Jesus. He says, all of that is yours. I, I'll give it to you if, if you bow down and worship me. You see, Jesus, you don't have to go through all that. You know, there's a shortcut. No need to suffer the cross. No need to go through all of that pain and suffering and humiliation. I'll give it to you if you just bow down and worship me. But we should be suspicious of those who think there are shortcuts. We can't work for our salvation. We must work at it. You see, what we have to do is clear. It's living in Christ-like obedience and Christ -like, a Christ-like quality of life. We must work out this great salvation with fear and trembling because there are enemies who want to rob you of your treasure. And in the end, you have to fight for what's yours. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus said in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast. Notice, hold fast. Cling to. Don't let go what you have that no one may take your crown. Satan wants to take your crown in any way that he can. Verse 13. For it is God, <clears throat> notice, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, God doesn't expect us to work out this precious gift of salvation on our own. He didn't save us and then just let us go and want now to see how we were going to, you know, how we were going to do on our own. He didn't, he didn't send us out and to depend on, upon our own resources, our own opinions, and resourcefulness. 
God doesn't expect anything out of us but failure. As Paul said in Romans 7, 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He has given us the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, to live in us, to fill us, and to lead us into all truth. And then in verse 12, Paul said, Work out your own salvation. Work out. This is to emphasize our responsibility, our part. It's the idea of a person working out a math problem and taking it through all of its different stages to come to the right conclusion. Salvation is to be worked out to its proper conclusion. Not in justification, because God saves us when we're, you know, when, when we're born again, but in sanctification, which is a day-by-day process becoming more and more and more like Jesus as we read and pray. And have that fellowship with Jesus. It's learning to live a life that's pleasing to God. Verse 13, Paul uses a a, a different word, works here. Which means to energize or to work effectively. It has more to do with God's enablement than our own resources. It's what, again, God's enabling us. It's not our own resources that helps us to work out our, our salvation. The words to will here, it means to desire. And it refers to a desire coming from the emotions rather from the intellect. Something I want to do. I want to do this because of what Jesus has done for me. To will and to do. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. The Holy Spirit plants in the believer's heart the desire and the determination to bring pleasure to God. And that's what we're called to do. To bring pleasure pleasure to God, to bring joy to God. Sanctification involves our cooperation with the Holy Spirit in producing a life that's pleasing to God. Jesus said, I always do those things that please Him, speaking of the Father. Again, for His good pleasure. The Holy Spirit doesn't do everything. He gives us the desire, He gives us the enablement, and we do as He leads us. And as we, say, as we say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things, then he releases the effective working of his power in our life. And this cooperation produces a transformation in our behavior that is absolutely required in keeping a good testimony in the world. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, Isaiah said to the people, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Notice it was the, it was the, the individual. It was the people who were to, to do this. They were to wash, their, wash themselves. They were to clean themselves. They were to put away the evil from their lives. They were to cease doing evil. God gives us the ability to do that. And if they would cleanse themselves by repenting, and, return, and turning from sin, then God would wipe their record clean in response to their faith. Verse 14. Then he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing or arguing. The word without there in verse 14 suggests isolation. So what Paul was saying is that the believer is to be isolated from complaining and disputing or arguing separated from these things. They shouldn't be a part part of my life or your life. 
The word complaining comes from discontented souls. We can be discontented with our circumstances. We can be discontented because somebody's uh, is getting ahead of us in life. They're doing better. They have more than we have. And as a result, we cl- complain about those things. Complaining is one of the character sins that grieve the Holy Spirit so much. And it can easily overtake us if we're not careful and it can become a poisoning habit. Let me just read to you what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 29 through 30, uh, 33, uh, 32. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good, notice, for edi- necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Again, the character of the believer, those things that Paul just mentioned, aren't to be in in our life. We have to be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because again, as, as Paul's pointing to, it can become a poisoning habit, complaining and arguing all the time. I mean, when you go through the Old Testament, that's all the children of Israel did for 40 years. The children of Israel almost drove Moses nuts. Drove almost to distraction with their complaining in the wilderness. They did nothing but criticize and complain. Their complaining was a sign of their carnality. The total opposite of the Christ-likeness that God was wanting to develop in his people. The night of redemption was barely over when Israel's complaining and disputing started. You know, when he took them out, into, out of Egypt and they were over at the Red Sea, they saw themselves trapped between Pharaoh's troops and the Red Sea. So the Israelites sarcastically said to Moses, I'll put it into language today. He said, hey, Moses, wasn't there enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us all the way out here to die in the wilderness? You know, their problem was that they didn't know what Moses knew. And that is that the situation that they were in had been ordained by God for the complete humiliation and final overthrow of the enemy. And that's what makes it so easy to complain. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what's behind the scenes. We don't know why he's doing it. God, do you really know what you're doing? Can't you see what, how this is affecting me? Can't you see what this is doing to me? Again, he knows all things. The Israelites complained when they came to Marah because they were thirsty. They complained when they came to the wilderness of sin because they were hungry. The Israelites harassed Moses at Rephidim when they were thirsty. And when Moses stayed so long on top of Mount Sinai, they complained and they talked Aaron into making a golden calf. Moses had, he's probably going, he ain't never coming back. We've got to take care of ourselves. In Numbers chapter 11, it tells us how God's people complained about the manna. All we have to eat is this manna. Well, if they didn't have manna, they wouldn't have anything to eat. Even Aaron and Miriam found fault with Moses. Oh, Moses, you know, we, can, we can lead everybody just as well as Moses you know, can do. Then when the ten spies came back with a negative report about the promised land, the Israelites complained bitterly about that. 
And that was it. That's, that, that sealed their doom. That sealed their fate of a continuing wilderness experience. And they brought it on themselves. What would have taken an 11-day journey from Egypt to Canaan took them 40 years. Why? Complain, complain, complain. They did not allow God. They didn't trust God. They didn't put their faith in God to take them where they were going to go and to take care of them through that journey. And lastly... Numbers 21.5, 20, uh, 21, the Holy Spirit stripped away their superficial layer of religion and he exposed the two sins of complaining and disputing for what they really are. In Numbers 21.7, this is what he said, For we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Complaining, arguing, we're complaining against God. We're basically saying, God, I don't like what you're doing in my life. I don't like where you've put me in my life. I don't like this in my life. And then as a result, the Lord sent fiery serpents to chastise the people of Israel for their sin. Now, Paul was seeing the same kind of behavior in the Philippians as we see in the children of Israel in the wilderness. That, 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 criticizing and it's got complaining and, and, and murmur. it was breaking out in the church but it wasn't new it wasn't new then it sure ain't new now complaining and disputing had popped up before in the book of acts they were starting to now to show up the complaining and disputes now starting to show up in the church at philippi and paul had to stop it immediately he had to nip it in the bud because you see he wanted his friends his converts to be of a Christ exemplifying personality. And you know, that's one of the sad things about the church. There's a lot of complaining and arguing in the church today about so many petty things. Non-essentials of the faith. Hey, we got to stand strong in the, in the essentials of the faith. But the non-essentials, we have to learn to agree to disagree. What, you know, why are we to do all things without complaining and disputing? Here it is in verse 15. Notice that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to be lights, light bearers. And I don't have to tell you, we are living in a dark world. All around us are people whose lives are messed up because of their sin. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians, such were some of you. But you were washed, you've been sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Therefore, we should be living like that, living like we're washed and sanctified and justified and living by the Spirit of our God. Paul's saying, hey, you know, we were just as selfish at one time. We were just as crooked as anybody else at one time. But our lives have been transformed. God has put us in this dark world to be lights. Our light shines when we do all things without complaining and disputing. We get along with others because we're blameless and harmless. The word blameless means without reproach. The word harmless means simple. You see, in God's eyes, there's no advantage for the Christian in being worldly wise. The word harmless can also mean guileless or sincere. It speaks of the real thing. It speaks of what's genuine. 
The only reason we can even think about living a blameless and harmless life in a world like ours is that we have become the children of God. And because the Son of God lived this kind of life, so can we. His life was faultless. It was beyond rebuke. They could not find any fault in him. The word without fault here means without blemish. There were no stains on Christ's life. Now, living in a world like ours, it's not easy to be asked to live an unblemished life in a world of sin and shame. The only way our testimony for Jesus can reach that standard that's set in verses 14 and 15 is based on how much we have really learned about the principles of living a new life in Christ. You know, when an unbeliever sees a professing Christian, whether it's at work, home, wherever it might be, who is argumentative, hard to get along with, worldly in their desires, worldly in their conversation and behavior, hey, it's not long before that, that unbeliever forms a poor opinion of Christianity. And Christians... When an unbeliever comes into a congregation of Christians who are quarreling, complaining, gossiping about brother and so-and-so or sister so-and-so, the leader here, whatever, the unbeliever is probably not going to stay for very long. Most likely they're going to say, man, I, I don't see any difference in these people than anybody else. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Holding fast the word of life. That is to be a basic part of the way we live every day in this dark world where everyone is going to die one day. But the walk has to come before the talk. When when people see us living the life, they're more likely to listen to what we have to say. But if our lives... If our lives are as, as, as appealing as, as, as the Lord Jesus' life was, people will be willing to ask, hey, what makes you so different from other people? Why don't you do like other people do? Then we'll have a really good chance to share the Lord Jesus with them. Paul urged the Philippians here to hold fast the word of life in their unsophisticated Roman society. You see, he had his eye on the rapture, the day of Christ, and the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. He wanted to be a rejoicing man. He wanted to be excited to see his converts, those that he won to Christ. He wanted to see them winning golden crowns at the judgment seat of Christ, and he wanted to see them receive high praise from the Lord Jesus. Paul wanted to be as successful as possible in spreading the gospel. He wanted to persuade people to accept Christ and then he wanted his converts to do the same thing, to just go on and go on and go on, you know, sharing the gospel and seeing souls saved. He wanted to see his converts teach their converts to spread the gospel. And at the judgment seat of Christ, their reward would be his reward. Paul's cup of rejoicing would overflow if those that he has won to Christ were to hear the Lord say to them, well done good and faithful servant. That would just bless his heart, he's saying. Then he, knew, then he would know, he meant, I didn't labor in vain. 
You see, Paul was afraid he had no doubt labored in vain among the Galatians because they had turned to the deadening Judaistic teaching that he wrote to them and said, I'm afraid for you because, uh, uh, he says, lest I have labored for you in vain. He said, man, you guys have turned to this, this to the law. You're going back to it. You know, he says, I, I, man, I, I worked, I labored in vain. Verse 17. He says, yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul saw his beloved converts as consecrated believers who had presented themselves to God as a living sacrifice as a sacrifice to God. They were being consumed on the altar of sacrifice and service. Are we offering ourselves again as, as living sacrifices to God in our service to Him? On that burnt offering, he was pouring out, it says here, as a drink offering, the wine of his own life blood, which he expected he was going to probably become a martyr. He figured he was going to shed his blood and become a martyr one day, the way things, you know, were with him. More than once his blood had already been shed in the persecutions that he had suffered for, for Jesus' sake. And in Old Testament times, when a person brought an animal sacrifice to God, he also brought wine to be poured out as an accompanying drink offering with it. And the amount of wine depended on the value of the sacrifice. The more impressive sacrifices uh, were... I'm sorry, the more impressive the sacrifices were, the greater amounts of wine were required. And since wine is symbolic of joy and delight in the Bible, we could say the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. The pouring out of the wine on the Old Testament sacrifice taught the truth that the way of sacrificing is the way of joys. That is truly when the Christian is the, is the most joyful. It's when they've denied themselves and are living for Jesus Christ. And this is the truth that Paul was wanting to teach the Philippians. The way of sacrifice is the way of joys. And many times throughout the Old Testament, when you saw them, when the, when the people would offer their sacrifices, they broke out in singing. See, before the singing comes the sacrifice. Before the crown becomes the sacrifice because it's truly the way of joys. Verse 18. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So summing up verses 1 through 18, we see the application of Paul's pointing to Christ as the supreme example of victory in sacrifice. What Paul was uh, getting at is clear. Paul was basically saying to the Philippians, look, your petty squabbles will soon ruin and blemish your testimony. He says there needs to be a transformation in your lives, in your behavior, in your character, and in your thoughts. You need a whole new view of the Christian life. You need to keep Calvary in mind. You need to keep the cross in mind. You need to think about Jesus who is the living secret of holiness. And he says think about the path that he followed from heaven to the cross. The cross of shame and then back to the throne of power at God's right hand. He went from heaven to the cross and from the cross back to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me. Think of the pouring out of Christ's blood. 
Think about him who Hebrews said, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Look at your lives in the light of the cross. You too should be on fire for God. Paul said, I myself, I'm probably going to be martyred. Any, in any cases, I'm, a living, I'm living like a martyr now. And as the scripture, I die daily. We should be living martyrs, dying daily to ourselves, to the temptations, to the things that, that would take away the crown. So in closing, when we look at the cross of Calvary, how can there be any room or a thought of, of complaining and disputing? It takes faith to exercise the submissive mind. And we have to believe that God's, God's promises are true. And that they're going to work in our lives, just like they worked in Paul's life and all other believers' lives. God works in us through the word, prayer, and suffering. And we work out in everyday living and service. God fulfills his purposes in us as we receive and believe his word. God works in, we work out. What God puts in, we flesh it out. See, that's what the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he goes on. Those aren't things that we do, they're things that we are when he puts in a new disposition in us, which is his disposition. When his disposition comes into our life, then we work out those, those characteristics, those attributes of Christ. God works in, we work out. And our example is Jesus. And the energy comes from the Holy Spirit, and that results in joy. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for this beautiful section of Scripture, Lord. We thank you for your word, God. And Lord, may we have a desire, God, to live for Christ. And we can do it, Lord. Father, it comes through denial. It comes through self-sacrifice, God. Again, before the singing is the sacrifice and before the crown is the cross. So Lord, help us to remember us. Remember that and help us to just allow you to work in that we can work out, God. Father, we pray now that you just bless the time that we have as Pastor uh, Tony leads us in communion, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.